Hey, everybody, it's Barry. Thought I'd leave you a little message before you listen to this special podcast recorded live at the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival with Kenya Barris. I really had a great time with this guy. He's so talented, so creative. And it came at a time when he was on the cusp of breaking past working for the person and then going off and working for himself and doing things on his own the way he wanted to do them on his terms. And this new movie that he just created with Jonah Hill wrote and directed is an example of that. You people might drive a lot of people crazy, but for me, I laugh my ass off. So I wanted you to hear this interview with Kenya and get an insight into a real, real special comedy mind. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I think for me the biggest thing that being a PA and an assistant is respect everyone. You know, like no one is, I don't believe in, I hate saying people work for me. I think we all work with each other. You know, I think that I hate when, you know, people are like, you know, something boss or whatever. I hate it. Like I hate Mr. Barris. I hate any of those things because I think everybody on that set from the PA to the, if one of those person, people don't do their job, the show falls apart. And I think that that is the biggest thing for me is like, if you start to learn to respect people, you'll get respect back. Hey everybody, I wanted to make a quick announcement because it was recorded in front of a live audience at the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival and is an exclusive and very timely and relevant interview with blackish creator and girls trip blockbuster film writer Kenya Barris. The interview happened the day that all the rumors were swirling, and then the announcement came, according to several reputable Hollywood news outlets, the same day as we recorded, that he would be exiting his overall deal with ABC Studios that he just signed a year ago and had three years left on the contract and be heading to Netflix with a whopping nine-figure deal. 
according to these sources, there's been growing frustration between Barris and ABC, which has never picked up any of his pilots since Blackish got on the air, didn't make a comedy pilot for a straight-to-series order he had at the network last year, moved Blackish away from its great postmodern family slot. And most devastating the Barris was the controversial power struggle over airing an edgy blackish episode the way he wanted to air it. And it never ended up airing due to their creative differences. Barris will be the third top creator Netflix has lured away from traditional TV with a mega pact, following Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy, who recently left 20th Century Fox. This is an incredibly inspirational interview in front of a live audience, and I know you're going to like it a lot. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Kenya Barris. Ladies and gentlemen, I am not Barry Katz, but I wanted to welcome you to this very special performance and a really wonderful interview between two amazing people. Just understand that your presence alone is already a holy shit moment, man. Please welcome to the stage a man who has the honor of being Brad Williams's manager. <laughs> Barry Katz, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. I am honored that you're here. It's odd when you start something in your spare time and you get invited to a place like this and then somebody like my guest says yes and somebody like Brad Williams comes up here and introduces you and if you have any dreams at all, it's amazing what can happen if you just go for it. So thank you so much for coming. I'm going to introduce my guests, and when you wake up afterwards, we're going to have a great interview. But I want to give them the proper introduction. All right, so here it goes. Kenya Barris is the creator of the Emmy-nominated series Blackish for ABC, which is loosely based on his life. The show has won a Peabody and AFI Award, Humanitas Prize, as well as multiple N. AACP Image Awards for Outstanding Writing in a Comedy Series and for Outstanding Comedy Series four years in a row. Before his success at ABC, he worked as a writer on several television projects, including Listen Up for CBS, CW's The Game and Girlfriends, and Fox's I Hate My Teenage Daughter. As a creator and executive producer, he has been a driving force in BT's The Startup, Hulu's We Got Next, America's Top Model, which he co-created and is currently in 48 countries. And most recently, the NBC Half Hour, Bright Futures, and the hit spin-off series, Grownish for Freeform. On the feature side, this guy's a monster, including movies like Barbershop 3, remakes of Son of Shaft and Coming to America, and an animated film based on the songs of Bob Marley. 
and of course, last summer's blockbuster comedy, Girls Trip, featuring Jada Pickett-Smith, Queen Latifah, Regina Hall, and of course, Tiffany Haddish. Please welcome, it's such an honor, Kenya Barris. Thank you so much. All right, you smell so good. <laughs> it's the second time Barry told me that. It's incredible. <laughs> you have a different pair of shoes every time I see you. Well, they're just, you know, uh, uh, that day. I'm a, a sneakerhead, so. How many pairs of sneakers do you have? A lot. Uh, more than a grown man should <laughs> A lot. I, I didn't have any tennis shoes growing up, so when I got a little bit of, it's the one thing I, like, indulged in. One of the things that people don't really understand about any business, because they always hear the success stories, oh, Tiffany Haddish, she's an overnight sensation. It's incredible. <laughs> I can't believe she just became a huge star. And they don't understand the trials and tribulations that it takes. And I thought the first thing we could talk about is the failures. Mm -hmm. Because what people don't understand is that before Blackish, you did almost 20 pilots mm -hmm. that didn't go. Mm -hmm. 20 pilots in how many years? 12. And when I think about that, I think of artists that I know that rely on getting the job. Mm -hmm. They rely on what other people write and what other people do. So they are always asking maybe, do I have an audition? When am I going out? What's happening? Can I get another audition? And then there's people like yourself who create the opportunities. The things that I wanted to do weren't out there. So I felt like I had to keep trying to do things that like, may, I was listening to you reading my credits. I was like, well, those are shitty credits. <laughs> those are shitty shows I was on. Um, but I, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to have an, you know, a, a shot at doing something that had my voice and I knew it wasn't out there. And so every year, I was lucky as a writer, I never didn't staff. Like every there's a staffing season, but I always got on the show. But it was <clears throat> a lot of shows that she went home at night, and I just I wasn't super happy with what I was doing. So I knew I wanted to do something that I felt like could be my voice. And then and just be different too. Be different than the voices that I had seen <clears throat> what black people were doing. I felt like we we were bigger than that. And I, and I, I wanted to do something that wasn't what they were trying to sort of, they being sort of the industry, pin us into. Was there a show out there that was on the air as you were going through these staffing jobs that you were on, that you were looking at and saying, if only I could do a show with the tone <coughs> like that show? Seinfeld. Seinfeld, like it was, I hadn't, that was my the show for me. And then there was stuff, extras and, you know, Veep and, you know, the British version of The Office and things like that. They came out that I was like, why can't we have that? I, I felt like their reverency of <clears throat> how we were seen was so monolithic. We were looked at like, you know, it was one kind of black person, you know, one kind of woman, one kind of gay person, one kind of, like, and I felt like that was, I knew for a fact that had to be incorrect because I knew a million different kinds of whatever people, but like whenever like niche, niche subgroups, we were always, you know, minorities, we were put into, there's one of us. And so I wanted to do a version that was, you know, even though you looked at Seinfeld, I was just like, that was four different oddballs 
who came together, and they, but they were given the version of being four different types of people and just being about observational humor and things like that. I wanted to do something like that. If I were to put, let's say, Blackish with those three shows, I'd say one of these things is definitely not like the other. They are, though. If it's, 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 it's in a different way. Like, <clears throat> they're saying something, in a, you know, Seinfeld was observational. It was like, he, you know, Larry took and him and Jerry and took and just saw the world and said, what's up with that? You know, like, then that sort of like was the, the version we did. We did that with just a family. You know, we said, like, this is a family who's here and what's up with that? You know, like, you know, one of the most interesting moments for me on how I started really realizing what the show was going to be. One of my partners, Jonathan Groff, was a great writer. He did Happy Endings. Great, great writer. Super smart. Um, I had to leave early to get a haircut. And I was like, I had to go to a haircut. He's like, dude, didn't you just get your haircut last week? I go, yeah, Jonathan. I get my haircut every week, dude. That's how it stays this short. (laughs) Do you think my hair just stays like this? And I saw in his face, he did. I was like, you think this is like a cadaver wig that black people just wear? And I was like, how often do you get your haircut? He's like, I get my haircut like every two or three months. I was like, every two or three months? And it just was the the notion that he grew up around a lot of black people. I grew up around, I hadn't thought about that. And it started to explain to to both of us, and we were like, there's a story here, the relationship between black people and the barbershop. Because that's someone you see often, that's a person who has a job, who's stable in a place where there's not a lot of stable men. And I was like, we started, like, we built that together, but it was out of observation. It was out of the sort of notion of, like, looking around at the world and, like, actually saying, like, you know, I talked about going to a funeral. I was like, I have to go to the repass. He said, a repass? What's a repass? I go, the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) A repass after the funeral. He's like, what is, what is, and, and just was like, the fact that that wasn't something in popular white culture that was sort of, Known like those are things that it's the same thing that sort of Jerry did. It was he was like, you know, why do the pharmacists have to be higher than everyone else? It's an observation that he sort of saw. We were like, why does this have to be this way? And like, let's dig into it. And what we found, honestly, is that it's far less malice and and even ignorance as far as just people just don't know because we're afraid to ask questions and talk about things and really get into each other. And we're, we're much more alike than we are different. But when we, but you have to actually be willing to have the conversations. You know, and I think the thing that I learned in network television is you have to have the conversations from both sides. You know what I'm saying? My mom used to tell me the best thing that she asked for any of her kids is be willing to exit a conversation different than you enter it. And you'd be very surprised how many people are not willing to do that. When I first came to Montreal, I came with Dave Chappelle. And we got here, and the party had finished. It was like 2 a.m. And he says, come with me. i got to get my hair cut. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, Dave, it's 2 a.m. He says, don't worry. There's a place open here. I'm like, what do you mean there's a place open? Yeah, barbershops are always open. And we went, and it was 3 o'clock in the morning, and somebody's cutting his hair. That's fantastic. And it's funny you said John Groff. His first joke I ever saw him do on an open mic night, he'd get on stage, really boyish haircut. And he says, I know you guys are looking at me. I just got back from the barbershop. I told the barber, I said, could you make me look four? <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell him that. <laughs> I'm going to go a little toe-to-toe with you mm-hmm. because Seinfeld 
the subject matter was why is the pharmacist higher mm -hmm. than the rest of us. Mm -hmm. The subject matter wasn't about somebody being killed by the police mm -hmm. unexpectedly and horribly. I think to myself, a show that I remember was when Rock went live. Mm -hmm. And I actually think your show was closer in tone to that than any of the ones you mentioned. Am I wrong? I think no, because of, no in the aspect of it's saying something and it's dealing with you know, a black family, but yes in the aspect of what we try to do and what we, I think that we have, you know, I will always, you know, I'm, um, no, I'm going to be stepping away from the show for, you know, this moving to do some other things. And one thing I will always sort of like remember about that show is we made people talk about things in a way that they hadn't talked about them before. Jerry just has the life of fortunately being a almost tall white man in the world. And you get to sort of walk around and think about the pharmacist. That's his life. It's a little bit different. My, I'm walking around thinking about how, you know, about not getting choked out by the police. It, I know it sounds like it's, they're two different worlds, but they are observations. He's observing his life and the world that, you know, that this country has allowed him to live and the things that were important to him. I'm observing my life and the world and my family and the world that, that, that I'm living in, but we're both doing it from a sort of like comedic, satirical edge. And that, in that aspect, they, I do think that they are two different worlds in the idea of what they're looking at, but they are looking at things from an observational place. I do think that, the comparisons, like the Cosby Show, I understand that's one of my favorite, you know, shows ever. But that show is could not be further from Blackish to me. You know, that was a show that was a they could have literally taken and put any family. They didn't have to be black. They could have taken and put in any family in that show, and it was about the day to day life of being in, being in a family. But it wasn't really observing or talking about things. You look at this show; it is loosely based on your life. But you do 19 pilots before that. And normally, everybody will tell you if you're going to be the most successful with what you want to drive forward, it should be the closest to your life. Mm -hmm. So were you saying the 19 things you did before that had nothing to do with your life? I wrote probably five family shows all about white families because they, and sometimes they weren't even about white families to begin with. But when I was done, I went back and was like, okay, Hakeem should be Brian. I just changed the names because I was like, this is what they're going to buy and this is what they're looking for. Um, because when they were trying to do about <clears throat> a show about a black family, they wanted to make it the Hughleys or Bernie Mac or Rock. And I was like, that's not my voice. That's not what we know. And so <clears throat> the only way that I could sort of add a reverency was to make it about a white family because that wasn't, you know, we were... It was something, you know, that wasn't something we were really allowed to sort of, at that point in time, do. And it's interesting to me, like Norman Lear, who I've gotten to, you know, look as a tourism mentor, 35 years ago, had, you know, multiple hit shows on at a time, talking about things, and suddenly selling soap became about not talking about things because you couldn't offend people, which was count. We didn't progress. We regressed, you know what I'm saying, as a culture, which is counterintuitive to like <clears throat> just evolution. You know what I'm saying? We stopped talking about things like we should have continued that thing that I'm not really should have been. As you know, comedy is the thing that like changes the world. You know, comedians are the people who talk about things and make people see things that during times, the hardest, darkest times, they're the ones who actually bring light to 
so many, you know, different sort of things we're going through and, and let us actually take that spoonful of sugar and, and experience it. And I feel like we had this amazing tool in television comedy that could have actually helped change the world through doing all these things we're going through. And we started doing nothing. You know, saying I love Marta Coffin's a friend and I love friends, but you know, what part of New York was that? <laughs> like what streets were that? You know what I'm saying? Where there was not a Puerto Rican or a black I'm like, I've I've never been on that street in New York, you know? And you know, it, it that became an example of what television was. Um, and I kind of feel like that was, you know, to me, just in general, now I've gotten opportunities to do, <clears throat> if I chose to, more mainstream projects, and that's not what I want to do. I feel like the mainstream to me is every one of us. The mainstream to me is the people that really, if you were to just reach down and grab a group of people, that's what life is. It's not one version of what life is. I think mainstream to me is like showing everybody in different, you know, lights, but giving them an honest version of you know, reflection for someone to see themselves on television. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. What was your process in terms <laughs> of learning how to, number one, submit the spec script? And for those of you who don't really know what a spec script is, that's when a writer will write a script from one of their favorite shows that they think will help them get to the next level and somebody will be impressed with. So your first spec script that you went out with was from what show? Seinfeld. Seinfeld. I, you know what? That's not true. My first script, before I knew anything, I wrote um, a Nick Frino professional teacher because I just wrote what I liked and I didn't know that you had to like write scripts that everybody knew. So that didn't get a lot of play. But my first like successful script that I got a job off of was a Seinfeld. So what happens is he submits these scripts to all these different showrunners during staffing season, which is normally sometime between... End of April to June? Yeah. Like yeah. And so you get some interviews. Mm -hmm. How do you know how to approach the interview? You've never really done that before. How do you know to go in the room and come out with a job? What's your winning formula? It's so interesting because you start learning. I think this is, I talked about this yesterday. I did my speech. You start realizing that your voice is the most important thing, but you don't know what that voice is. And I remember going to an interview in a suit. And it just like in TV, if you wear a suit, it weirds people out. Like, you know what I'm saying? People are like, why is this guy in a suit? But I was like, you know, coming like my mom was like, dress nice. You know, so I, <laughs> I, I, I went to an interview in a suit, you know what I'm saying? And it was like I had my resume, 
You know, it's just like this guy was looking at me like, what? Was, and so I didn't realize. I started leaning in more and more. So you didn't get that gig. I did not get that gig. <laughs> and, but you start realizing more and more that the only version of you that you can be is you. And that's the people that actually, the version that people are either going to get or not get. And so I started being like, realizing I am who I am and just leaning into the version of like, I'm a black dude from Inglewood that wears sagging jeans and sometimes I, you know, have a t-shirt on. I, you know, have all the sort of stuff like, you know, I'll have jewelry on because I didn't have shit growing up. And I started just being more and more of a bigger version of me. And people honestly started, I think, embracing that. So you go into your first interview where you get the gig. You're the best representation of yourself. Mm -hmm. You get the call. You get the gig. Which gig was that, the first writing job? My first writing job was, I think, the Keenan Every Way In Show. Now, this is a fascinating topic to talk about. Mm -hmm. So on a scale of <laughs> calm over here and over here being not calm, and there's... <laughs> a lot of stuff going on and a lot of dramatic moments, whether silent or created or walking on eggshells, Keenan was not over here. He was not. Keenan was way over here. Now, Keenan is a brilliant man, a genius, mm -hmm. but the way the writer's rooms were put together there, you were there from the time you got there until God knows when he decided you could leave. He had this eclectic group of, if you don't mind me saying, broken people working there and he could fire somebody at any second and did and then there'd be a new person in there and you'd be like what happened to Joe oh he's not here anymore I'm here and how did you handle that situation knowing that when I'm around you I feel calm I feel like you have this thing about you that's a calming presence I'm not saying the people who work and write for you don't walk on eggshells sometimes. I hope they don't. But you know that it's possible mm -hmm. that they do. But how do you become who you are knowing that you had to navigate through that with Keenan? And how did you navigate and stay there as long as you did knowing how many people were taken out? I went, and the show got canceled not long after. I was a trainee um, with my partner, Anthony Walker, at the time. But you knew Keenan was a genius. And so sometime I think genius gets a pass in a different way. Um, and you would see his wheels turn. And <clears throat> it also had writers on that show that were this, this guy Vern and Michael Anthony Snowden. I mean, that were like some of the jokes that didn't get make, made on that show were like, you're like, how did someone think of that? We, we had a, there was a bit <clears throat> um, that this guy Vernon, who went on to write on South Park and all this stuff. Um, one of the funniest. Vernon ones. Chapman. Vernon Chapman. Incredible writer. Um, called Too Many Niggas on Stage. <laughs> and it was about like a Wu-Tang-ass group. And it just was like how they kept bringing people out. You know what I'm saying? Like they were introducing people. It, and suddenly the, the stage crashes in. And it's all, it's rubble. And you just hear somebody go, man, we got too many niggas on stage. <laughs> And like that never made the, you know, we shot it, but it was like that never made it, you know, and it was worth the job and learning was, it's always worth to be around brilliant, smart, funny, broken people. It, it's, 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 I would do it for free. 
And at that point, to be able to do anything like that, you know, and kind of you know, like you're doing this podcast. Yeah. No, seriously, just to be around you and, you know, what I'm saying I've always been a fan of, of Barry and, you know, what you've done. You, you could tell stories for, you know, days. You've been in, touched every version of this crazy thing at every place. But, like, <clears throat> to be around that, I feel like the stories are sometimes worth, you know, everything. So I just was happy to be in it, you know. I didn't care if you got fired or it got canceled or this, you know, it was. I think that you learn more from your failures, you know, than you do from your successes. And I think the idea that <clears throat> I'm seeing that because there's so much television right now, so many writers are coming to me and they're like, well, this is my pilot. I'm going to go shoot it. I'm like, you, this is your first thing you've written. You're shooting this? You know, like you're going to be, I think, and I don't want to be the get off my lawn, old man. But I do think there's something to that notion of like, <clears throat> I was a PA, I was a writer's assistant. I was a script coordinator. Um, I was a, a trainee, a staff writer. Growing up, you, I think there's something to sort of learning, and I think that that's kind of you know falling a little bit by the wayside. There's different philosophies of things. You were the person who went the traditional route. I mean, literally, I don't think there was a credit that you didn't have. Absolutely. So you went from credit to credit to credit all the way to creating and executive producing, and mm -hmm. it's incredible. But there is something truly extraordinary, and you've seen them, where somebody writes a film, and they go and they direct their first film, and it's amazing. So there are people out there. It's always sunny guys. Yeah, I mean, there's Dan Fogelman, who's a, one of my you know mentors and great, great friends, was parking cars or you know doing something, and next thing you know. He had a TV show. I'd never, you know, had a TV show. Next thing you know, he's written cars. Next thing you know, he's, I just saw his newest film. First movie, he's, second movie he's directed, but really first big movie. He's going to win an Oscar for it. There's no rules, but chances are if you go your route, you're going to have a better percentage shot of getting to where you want to go as somebody who just does it on their own right away, but there's yes. nothing wrong with doing because there's the examples. Look at workaholics. Mm -hmm. So if you feel you've trained hard and you've been in the trenches and you have them in the rooms, you still can do it. Now, I'm fascinated by this because you went through the process in all these rooms, mm -hmm. all these credits, and you had to navigate. Mm -hmm. Like on Saturday Night Live, things that are unexplainable. And again, if these people were sitting here, I would have the same conversation. You have David Koechner, who had six original characters his first year on Saturday Night Live and was fired. You have Tracy Morgan, that had not one original character his first year on Saturday Night Live, had many shows with Lorne Michaels. Mm -hmm. And you ask yourself, how does this happen? Why does it happen? And the only reason it possibly can happen is because of how you are behind closed doors with people mm -hmm. and how you navigate with people who want to take you out or are thinking about taking you out or you know are shaking your hand and smiling, hey, Kenya, God, you're doing really great, buddy. God, I'm really rooting for you. But you know they're rooting for themselves. I've seen it happen, yeah. What was your formula for our audience for navigating and getting to the next level and not getting fired. I think for me, like you bring up Keenan, people you know who have some people who have difficult you know personalities or whatever. I think for me, the biggest thing that being a PA and a assistant is respect everyone. 
you know, like no one is, I don't believe in, I hate saying people work for me. I think we all work with each other. You know, I think that I hate when, you know, people are like, you know, something boss or whatever. I hate it. Like it, I hate Mr. Barris. I hate any of those things because I think everybody on that set from the PA to the, if one of those person, people don't do their job, the show falls apart. And I think that that is the biggest thing for me is like, if you start to learn to respect people, you'll get respect back and you'll also learn, you'll learn way more about yourself and about the show. And it's like the, the so I think the navigation of it is literally trying to go in the rise that everybody's doing their job and you want to have a good time and have conversations and talk to people and really sort of, you know, know that these people are going home to their family and they want to, <clears throat> they want to go home to their family just like you do. And they want this show to be good. And, you know, the, um, the biggest compliment I can get is when I have the craft service come and say our show, you know, our show. And I'm like, oh my, like the idea that you can do something that everyone feels like they're a part of. To me, I think that's the thing that's been <clears throat> lost with so many people who've had, any kind of success is realizing that it won't, it's not you, you know, that it's not you, that you have to have a clear view and a clear idea so that you can help other people, you know, ex have, help you execute that. But like, it's about sort of just being, don't be a fucking dick. <clears throat> don't be a dick. Just fucking everybody's here. Just be cool. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes you have to, you know, get upset because stuff's not going right, but nobody is probably no one's doing that to you personally on purpose. And if there are, then unfortunately, you probably have to get rid of them. But just don't be a fucking dick. And and don't let other people be dicks around you, even if they're not doing it to you. If I see someone else who's, you know, I, that's the person I'm quickest to get rid of. You know what I'm saying? If I see someone else who's causing problems for other people, I feel like, <clears throat> we, you know, we're not machinist. You know what I'm saying? We're not worrying about hot bolts coming into our lap or losing a, 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 a pinky. We're getting, we're here doing jokes <clears throat> and we get to do it and get paid well and work really hard. So <clears throat> I understand that everybody has things going on in their life, but don't bring that to work. One of the things that was really exciting the last night to see, and it was a strange thing that you're going to find that I find exciting, is you introduced me to one of the writers on your staff. Mm. And he was next to you, and he was a towering man, <laughs> very quiet. And you introduced me, and you said, this is one of the greatest young writers out there. And as anybody in any profession, to have somebody like you allow them to stand by your side, show me who you're with, and I'll show you who you are. And that's what you did with him. And when I shook his hand, the pride came through his hand into me, how proud he was to know that you said that about him. That guy clearly mm -hmm. is doing something that you see him and you look at him. And if you look into the future, like the dead zone, mm -hmm. you know this guy's going to be creating his own show. And you know this guy's going to be on the air with his own show. Mm -hmm. You've anointed him, even though if he doesn't even know it. What is he doing besides not being an asshole that maybe other people on staffs that you've been on all through your career aren't doing? Giving it his all. Like, honestly, I'd ever, you know, there's a one, that guy's name is Peter Saji. We're, we're writing a play 
my first Broadway play. We're doing it together with Pharrell and um, Oscar Eustace at the Public. I mean, it's just like you know, it's a, it's about Juneteenth, <clears throat> um, and he is one of the, the writers that you can send him off to write copy for this. You could say, could you go just do an introduction? And when you come, when you can tell that what you get back, not only is it just he has the natural ability, but you can tell like he actually tried. Like you can tell when people phone stuff in, he phones nothing in. He phones nothing in. And I think most of the writers that I work with, that's one of the things like I don't even read usually anymore because by the time a person gets to me, I'm imagining that they've gone through all the steps that they know how to write. What I'm really more interested in is who they are as a person and how they're going to like, <clears throat> are they going to be, you know, completely free in giving of themselves and telling their stories. When you sit in a room, you hear stuff from people, the writers, we talk about our wives and husbands cheating. You talk about giving a loved one an STD. You talk about <clears throat> your mother dying of cancer. You talk about, you know, you talk about the most intimate personal things. So there has to be a lot of trust, first of all, for you to imagine people, they're not going to take that in too. It's really scary for someone to be that honest, you know, and and I think the way that you sort of get the best from writers are when someone's that honest, but they're also willing to try really hard to to want everything to be the best. And he's that guy. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drop that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over, till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave. Down in the valley. Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, 
one-on-one coaching with me and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.